Well, let me welcome you to week five of our study in the Gospel of John. It's called Love Divine, the Deity of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Now, before we get started, I want to remind you to print out the handout that goes with each lesson. Uh, if you do, it'll help you a lot because it, it'll have all the notes, all the verses, everything you need is going to be on that document. So make sure you print that out and you can take notes on it if you want, but it's designed so you don't have to take notes. Uh, but I also want to thank you guys because I, a couple of weeks ago, I asked you to start sending me um, selfies of you guys watching these videos, either at home, via Zoom. Many of you are meeting actually in homes uh, together. Some of you are continuing to stay apart and doing everything via Zoom. And so you guys started sending those in and you've sent me a ton of visuals and it's been great. So here's just a few. It's a motley group. I, I have to admit that you guys, uh, you don't photograph well, but I'm just grateful to be able to put faces to this study because as I told you a couple of weeks ago, I'm, I'm in an empty room talking into the dark. And so you've sent me a lot of pictures. It's been fun to watch those, to see you guys. Uh, again, many of you are doing this by yourselves. Uh, many of you are doing it via Zoom, using technology, and then a lot of you are getting together in homes, at parks, in various places. We even have, have a group that are meeting on the top floor of the church parking garage. They bring their own lawn chairs. Uh, so it, it's been fun to watch and see how many guys all across, literally, Tarrant County, Johnson County, and Parker County are getting together and doing this study together. We even have a group in Uganda that are doing this study with us. We have another group in Midland. So it's, it's fun to see what God's doing using technology to carry his kingdom further. I even got this image from one of the groups and it was their attempt at humor. Um, they said, this is what happened as soon as they started watching the video. So nice try guys, but uh, thanks for sending these in. Continue to do so each week just to show me what's going on and we keep adding new groups as we move along. So. This week, we're going to pick up where uh, Mitchell left off. He covered chapter 3 and chapter 4, uh, not quite to the end of chapter 4. So we're going to pick up the last few verses of chapter 4. We're going to move into chapter 5, and we're going to take this journey with Christ further as John unpacks the deity of Jesus in his gospel. So last week, Mitchell uh, introduced us to this idea of the Son's mission being disclosed, uh, right out of the gate, as soon as he was baptized, he, he got busy. He went on mission. And, and so we saw him beginning to do things uh, to really show why he was here, why he had, he, he had come. And so in John 3.16, in this very familiar verse that was spoken to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who had come to him at night, Jesus told this this religious leader of the Israelites, here's what he told them, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should what? Should not perish, but have eternal life. We're all familiar with this passage, but we often don't tie it directly to his conversation with Nicodemus, this Pharisee. So here's Jesus disclosing his mission. Why did he come? He came to bring eternal life. Uh, when he met with the woman at the well, he told her that he came to bring the water of life, and he offered her this water of life. And so, again, right out of the gate, here's Jesus disclosing his mission. Why did he come? Why was he there? Now, Nicodemus didn't quite get it. 
Uh, we don't know exactly what happened to him, but he left without expressing any kind of faith in Christ. We do know what happened to the Samaritan woman and to those people with whom she shared her story back in her town. Many of them became believers in Jesus Christ. They, they heard the message, they heard the mission, and they believed in the one proclaiming that mission. And so now we're going to move forward, and this week we're going to look at the son's authority displayed. Now, this one's very important as we move through the gospel because now Jesus is going to begin to reveal and display his power in such a way that it explains who he is and it explains where he's getting this power and authority from. So in John chapter 5, verse 22, it says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, this is Jesus speaking of himself, and he's declaring that he has the authority to judge, and he tells where he got that authority from. So we're going to dig into it as we look at the end of chapter 4 and as we move into chapter 5 and see how he begins to disclose and display and declare his authority. And, and it's going to be in pretty powerful terms. So in the closing verses of chapter 4, here's what it says. After two days, he departed for Galilee. He spent two days in Samaria where he ministered to the people. Many of them became believers in Christ. And so he stayed there two days, then he leaves and he heads to Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. We don't know when he said this, and we'll, we'll just get into this a little bit more in just a second. But this is something that he testified about himself, that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now, there seems to be a, a little bit of a disconnect here, a little disagreement in the text, because it says that he prophesied that a prophet has no honor in his hometown, but he goes to Galilee, where his hometown is located, and it says he's welcome. So when they came there, he's welcomed, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. And that's going to help explain their welcome. Why did they extend him a welcome? For they too had gone to the feast. So what's going on here? Well, it says that Jesus proclaimed, he prophesied that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And yet it says, in Galilee, where Nazareth was, he was welcomed. So again, what's, what's going on? Well, to understand this, you have to understand what Jesus is saying. Whenever he made this comment about not being honored in his hometown, the word is to me in the Greek, and it means honor which belongs to someone or shown to someone. So he goes, a, a prophet, someone who speaks on behalf of God, has no honor in his own hometown. Now, if you go back and study the Old Testament, you'll see that that's really true, that none of the prophets were welcomed or honored in their own hometowns. They were despised. They were looked upon as uh, problems. They were a, a thorn in the side of the Israelites, and so they were never welcomed. They really weren't welcomed anywhere in Israel, but particularly in their own hometowns. And so Jesus is saying that's true of him, that I'm, I'm not even welcome in my own hometown, in Galilee. At some point, he had made this comment to his disciples, and John had remembered it and recorded it in his gospel. But again, what's going on here? Why does he seem to be welcomed when he says a prophet has no welcome in his hometown? I'm, I'm suggesting that he probably said this 
while in Samaria. And I have a reason for that. Because you have to remember what he said or what the Samaritan woman said of him when he was in Samaria. Remember, Samaria is an area almost right in the middle of Judea, of, of Israel at that time. And it represented a people who were despised by the Jews because they were considered half-breeds. And Mitchell went into this in detail last week. But here's Jesus in Samaria. He meets with this woman who's an adulterous woman and a Samaritan. So she's got two strikes against her. And here's what she says. She said of Jesus, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, this is coming out of the mouth of a Samaritan woman who happens to also be an adulteress. She's a, considered a half-breed. She's despised by the Jews. She's considered to be idolatrous because they didn't just worship Yahweh. They worshiped other gods as well. And so she makes this statement, though. I perceive that you're a prophet. And that's important because now Jesus, at the end of chapter 4 and moving into chapter 5, is moving out of Samaria and he's moving to Galilee, moving back to Galilee up in the north. And this is the area where he spent most of his time. It's where Nazareth, Nazareth was, and it's where Capernaum is, as we'll see in a second. And that really was his headquarters. So he's moving from Samaria, and in a, in a sense, he's going home. Samaria is not his home. Samaria is not where any Jew would live or want to live, and it was odd that he stopped there to begin with, but now he's moving and he's going home. And it says that he's welcomed. He's welcomed by the Jews who live there. But again, what does that mean? Well, the Greek word is dekamai, and it means to receive or grant someone access. But it's usually someone who's a visitor. You're welcoming someone who's a visitor into your home, into this area, but they're treating him almost like he's a stranger, not Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, but as if they've never seen him before, that they don't know anything about him. And so you have this really weird greeting that they give him. And John's going to tell us why they greet him and why they welcome him. But we know from the very early stages of, of John's epistle or John's gospel is that he said that his own did not receive him. They would not receive him. He was born as a Jew, but he was not accepted by the Jews. But they're going to give him, at this point in the story, they're going to give him a welcome, but it's a different kind of welcome, a different kind of reception. See, in John 1.11, it says, he came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. Well, then why did they receive him here? What's going on in this particular story that they would welcome him when John started his whole gospel out saying they wouldn't? Well, it all has to do with something that they find interesting about him. See, they're going to receive him, but they're going to receive him for the wrong reason. And you're going to see this pattern all throughout John's gospel, that there are going to be countless individuals who seem to receive Jesus as who he claims to be, as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the one sent from God, but they're going to receive him for the wrong reasons. They're going to misunderstand who he is and why he came. And that's exactly what's happening here. See, in John chapter 4, verse 45, it says, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So they had seen Jesus do miracles. 
Now, we're not told by John what those miracles were, but we can guess that he probably healed some people. He, he probably had lame people who, learned, who were able to walk, blind people who were able to see. Many of the things that he's done before and that he's going to do again, he did at this feast. And these people in Galilee had been there in Jerusalem to see him do it. And now they've returned home. Here comes Jesus. His reputation's gone ahead of him. And they welcome him. Why did they welcome him? Well, because of what he had done. Chapter 2, verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. This is key. They believed in his name, and that really has to do with his character, who he claims to be, the Son of God. And, and they believed because they saw the signs. They saw him do some incredible things. Now, we have to admit, even this far on the other side of the cross, that when we go back and read the Gospels and we read the stories of some of the things Jesus did, they, they raise our eyebrows, they get our attention because he did incredibly supernatural things, out-of-this-world things. And these people were no different. They were attracted to these things. They were enamored by these things. They were blown away by his ability to heal people and to cast out demons. And so they're attracted to the signs. And so in verse 46, it tells us when he came to Cana in Galilee. So he leaves Samaria. He goes into the region of Galilee up in the north, and he's going to head to the city of Cana. And we've been there before. It's where he turned the water into wine, as it says here. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So here's the scene. He goes back to a place he's been. It's a place where he did a miracle once before. He's just done a whole series of miracles in Jerusalem at the feast. And so now the crowds are attracted and they welcome him. Why? Because they think he's going to do more, more of the same, more miracles. He's going to heal people. He's going to do things that uh, leave them in awe. And so they welcome him. Remember, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. But man, do a few miracles and all things are changed. And so that's the tone of what John is trying to create here as we move into the end of chapter four and into chapter five. So he's in Cana and it says, and at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So we're introduced to yet another character. We've met several characters. We've met Nicodemus. We've met uh, the woman at the well. And now we meet this official. And, and it's setting a tone that there's some transitions, some things that are happening in the story, in the text that we need to be aware of. The first one is that he's moved from Samaria to Galilee. As we said, he's moved home. And now there's a reference from Cana to Capernaum. So we've got two different cities, one a little bit further to the north, and we'll look at that in just a second. But then he's also moving from talking to a Samaritan woman to this royal official. This gentleman was probably on the payroll of King Herod. He, he was an official. We don't know for sure whether he was a Jew or whether he was a Gentile. And it's really not important to the story. But there is a difference going on because we went from talking about a, a probably a very poor Samaritan woman who was also an adulteress and who was also probably an outcast because of that from her own people to talking about a very rich and powerful man. So there's these transitions taking place in the text that we need to notice as Jesus moves from Samaria 
all the way up to Cana. And then there's this reference to the city of Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. All of this is germane to what we're trying to talk about here and what John is trying to tell us about the authority of Jesus Christ. So let's go on. It says that at Capernaum, there was this official whose son was ill, very important. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, it's interesting how he doesn't know anything about Samaria. All he knows is that Jesus went from Jerusalem back in Judea and he's now back in Galilee. It says, excuse me, it says he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. Now, that's kind of a strange phrase, but we've looked at this before. He says he wants him to come down. Even though Capernaum's in the north, it's downhill from Cana. Everything in that region is described by virtue of of topographics, the height of the city. It, It just so happens that Cana is at a higher altitude than Capernaum, and Capernaum's down on the seashore, so it's in the valley. And so he, he wants Jesus to come down because it says his son was at the point of death. This, this is an important point for us to consider because this man is desperate. His son is dying. And he's come all the way from Capernaum to Cana in order to talk to Jesus because his son's at the point of death. And Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, what did we just talk about? Why did these people welcome him? because he did signs and wonders in Jerusalem. And now Jesus makes this, what sounds like a very sarcastic, almost cutting comment to this gentleman. But there's something we need to know about what's what's said in the original language because he uses a, a personal pronoun that's in the second person. And it really could be translated, you people. He's not talking to this man. He's talking to the Jews who are standing around him. Remember, they've welcomed him. They've gathered. They want to see him do something pretty incredible. And so he says, you people, let's put it in Texan, y'all. Y'all people, you just just have to see a sign. You have to see something fantastic. And he's telling them, you are going to always require a sign before you'll believe. And that's not a compliment. See, He's the word of God incarnate. He, he speaks on behalf of God and they don't want to listen to what he has to say. They want to see him do miracles. And so he makes this kind of crass statement. You people have to always see a sign. And yet we saw last week in chapters three and chapters four that the Samaritans believed without seeing a sign. And you, you can't miss this point because He just spent several days ministering to people who the Jews considered outcasts. They considered them no better than dogs. And yet they believed and they didn't require a sign. How do I know that? Chapter four, verse 39 says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Remember, she left Jesus' side, went back into town and told them everything he had said about her. And it says, they believed but that wasn't enough. They believed, but they wanted to hear it for themselves. So they made a beeline to Jesus. And it says many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves straight from his mouth. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Again, don't miss what's going on here. 
He's done no miracles. He didn't turn water into wine. He didn't raise anybody from the dead. He, all he did was tell her who he was, and she believed, and so did they. All because of the testimony of the woman and the testimony of Jesus Christ himself. They didn't require a sign. But here's what Paul says about the Jews. He says, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks search for wisdom. The Jews have to see something. The Greeks have to know something. They, they want wisdom. They want intelligence. They want intellectual proof, whereas the Jews demand a visible sign proof. Do a miracle. Show me something. And they weren't willing to listen to the words of Christ. They want proof. So what, what happens here? After Jesus makes this statement that, that you all, you people, always have to have a sign before you'll believe, the official said, sir, come down before my child dies. It's like it goes in one ear and out the other. He doesn't even acknowledge what Jesus said. He just says, all I know is I need you to come down because my kid's going to die. And look what Jesus said to him. Go, your son will live. What, what an incredible statement to make to a man who's come all the way from Capernaum. His son is dying. He's desperate for Jesus to come to his town and heal his son. And he believes that he can do it. And Jesus says, go, your son will live. It sounds rather flippant. But look at what it says. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. First, he says, I need you to come down. My, my son's dying. And then it says, he believed what Jesus said. In the middle of these two statements is the statement of Jesus, go, your son will live. The man believed. N nothing had been done. No miracle had been performed. He hadn't seen Jesus do one stinking thing. All he'd heard him say was, go, your son will live. And the man believed that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. It's an incredible insight into the faith of this man and his faith in the words of Jesus, not the works of Jesus. See, what it tells me is that the man already believed about Jesus. He wouldn't have come all the way from Capernaum to Cana if he hadn't already believed that this man can heal my son. See, he was expecting a solution, not a sign. He wasn't demanding that Jesus do something great before he believed that he could heal his son. He came believing that he could heal his son. And, and, and he was expecting it. He fully expected it. He had the faith to believe that Jesus could and would do it, and Jesus delivered on the man's faith. And he just simply said, go. Go home. Your son will live. And that's exactly what happened. It says, as he was going down, again, down to Capernaum, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them, at what hour? He, he's, he's met by his servants who, who meet him some distance from town, and they tell him, your son's recovering. It's just as Jesus said, go, your son will live. And he meets his servants, they tell him the good news, and he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. He put it all together. He, he got this message from his servants that at the very moment Jesus said, go, your son will live, his son, son's fever left him. 
And it says, once again, he himself believed in all his household. What did he believe? He believed the word of God. He believed the word of God as spoken through the lips of the son of God. And he received an incredible miracle, the healing of his son. And not only did he believe, but it goes on and says all his household. It's like the woman who, the Samaritan woman who went back into town and told all her friends and neighbors and they came to faith in Christ. This man and his whole household came to faith in Christ because of what Jesus said. And it goes on and says, this is the second sign that Jesus did in Cana, which is kind of interesting because he didn't really do a miracle in Cana. The miracle took place in Capernaum. So what's, what's going on here? That first miracle that happened is the one we looked at earlier about the wedding, the wedding that took place in Canaan when Jesus turned water into wine. But here's the interesting thing. Nobody at that occasion really saw what happened. You remember the servants were told by Jesus to go fill up these large jars with water to the brim, and they did. And then when they started to serve the water, they noticed that it's no longer water, it's wine. They didn't see it happen. They didn't get to see a visual, but the only ones who were really aware of it were who? Servants. And that's important. No one in that wedding party had seen the sign. Only the servants. Only those servants, those lowly of lowliest people, were able to understand what had truly happened. And it must have been funny for them to sit there and watch with kind of excitement that they were the only insiders that really knew what Jesus had done. And that this incredible wine that the guests were drinking had, had just a few minutes ago been ordinary water that they had filled into those jugs. But it was hidden from the Jewish guests. It was hidden from the guests at the party. See, it's all this picture of signs and wonders, the need for a sign, the need for a visual. But this sign, this second sign that we're talking about Remember, one takes place at the wedding in Cana, water being turned into wine. The second one emanates from Cana. In other words, Jesus spoke the words from Cana, but it took place in Capernaum. And once again, something interesting happens. Who met the man as he made his way back? Servants. You have this picture of servants again, lowly servants. They're the only ones that knew what had happened. They had seen the fever leave the sun. What they didn't know is why. But when they met their master and he told them what had happened, they had the joy of, of understanding that we saw something happen that was a miracle. And I love the fact that in both these cases, both at the wedding in Cana and now this healing of the official son, that the only ones who saw this were lowly servants. And it reminds me of this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one could ever boast in the presence of God. I hope you understand that Paul's talking about you and me. That in this passage, he's saying that you are the lowly one. You are the, the weak one. You are the insignificant one. You are the one without power. And yet God chose you. 
God chose me. And, and you have this wonderful picture of, of this miracle, second miracle taking place in Cana. But the real point behind it all is Jesus is displaying his authority. Well, how does he do that? Look at this. He spoke and the boy was healed. Now, this is not the first time and it will not be the last time that Jesus just simply speaks and something amazing happens. But he speaks and the key thing is he, he has power over sickness and death. Remember, the boy's about to die and Jesus just speaks and the boy is immediately healed. His fever goes away. And not only that, he does it over a distance. See, Jesus is not limited by space or time. He didn't have to get up and go to Capernaum. He just simply said, go for your son will live. He has authority. He has power. And it's not limited, but it's, it's hidden from sign seekers. And I love this part of the story. That the people who greeted him in Galilee and who were with him in Cana when he spoke the words, go for your son is healed, didn't get to see the miracle. They didn't get to see the sign. All they heard him say was, go, your son lives, the man leaves, but they never got to see the result of what happened. Only that man did, and only his servants did, and any of those who were in his house, all those who came to believe. See, his authority was displayed to the foolish, to the powerless, and to the despised. And that's exactly what's happened for you and I. So as Jesus makes his way through Judea, Samaria, to Galilee, and as he spreads his message all throughout that area of the world, he's going to continue to display his authority. He's going to show people that he has power. He has authority to speak. He, has, he can do things because he's been sent from the Father. So let's move into chapter 5. It says that after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he's going to leave Cana up in the north, and he's going to go up topographically all the way back to Judah, to the city of Jerusalem. Now, there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five porticos. So he's going back to the city of Jerusalem. This is the headquarters of the Sanhedrin, the high priest and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's going back into enemy territory, so to speak. And he goes to this area, this pool of Bethesda, and it's, it's a place where people gathered because they believed that this pool, the waters of the pool had healing powers. It says, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So the people would gather around the edges of the water. And the story goes that angels would stir up the water. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on here, whether it was a, a spring that would bubble up periodically. But, but they believed that if they could be the first one into the water, they would be healed. And that's going to be important to the story. But it says there's a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been, already been there a long time, that's significant, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, this is an incredible question, right? It's like, what? I'm, I'm obviously paralyzed. I'm obviously laying by this pool. 
the story goes that if I can get in the water, I'll be healed, and you're asking me if I want to be healed. See, Jesus is, is not ignorant of the fact of there's something wrong with this guy. He's really displaying just how bad this problem is for this man. And it's a picture of the problem of all men, all men, all women of all times. There's, there's a kind of a, a metaphor going on here that Jesus wants us to understand because this man has been this, this way for a long time. It says he's been an invalid for 38 years and it's been for a long time. So John is emphasizing the length of time of this guy's problem. It's a, it's a picture of hopelessness, right? Can you imagine laying by the spool for 38 years in the hopes that you could get into the water so that you could be healed and year after year, month after month, week after week, you're never the one. And it's, you're, you're just, it's a picture of complete futility, hopelessness, helplessness. And see, that pool, as we just saw, was surrounded by what? More of the same. This guy was not alone. He's surrounded by other lame people, other sick people, other diseased people, and they all want the same thing, but they can't get into the water fast enough. And so you get this picture of just how bleak it is. And here's the, the worst part about it all, is this man's problem is preventing him from getting the solution he longs for. Now just stop and think about that. What a picture of fallen man's dilemma that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we are condemned to death by the very will of God because of our transgressions and we can't do anything about it. See, this man was paralyzed. He couldn't get into the water, but he had to get in the water if he wanted to be made well, if he wanted to be unparalyzed and yet his problem prevented him from getting the solution. So Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And the man answers, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Do you sense the frustration? He wants to get in the pool. He wants to be healed, but he can't get healed. And again, it's a picture of mankind without Christ. There's nothing we can do. We can't get in the water. Yes, we want to be healed. Yes, we want to have our sins done away with. We want to be made right. But he says, I have no one. He's all alone. He's helpless. And here's what jumps, jumps out at me in this passage. This guy's situation is completely dire, desperate, hopeless, and helpless. See, he's an invalid. It's, it's a word in the Greek that, that has all kinds of depth to it. He, he cannot do anything. He has no strength. For 38 years he's laid there and he has no strength to fix his problem. He's alone. He has no help. He says, I have no one. <coughs> Excuse me. There's nobody to help me get in the water. And when the water gets stirred up, the guy across the pool gets put in by his friends. I have no one. So it's this picture of helplessness. He's surrounded by fellow sufferers. I mean, it says there was a multitude of people just as desperate as he was, and there's nobody who can give him a positive example. The text doesn't tell us that anybody got healed by getting in the water that day. And yet they all suffer the same fate. 
just like mankind does. It says a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed of all kinds, all ages, all stripes, male, female, rich, poor, they're all laying there hoping for the same thing, but unable to see it happen. They're all powerless and without hope. Again, what a picture of fallen mankind. See, we're told in the Gospel of John that Jesus came into the world and it was a world mired in darkness, desperation. And this is the picture. And yet he asked this man, do you want to be healed? And the man says, yes, but I can't. I have no one to help me. And so Jesus said to him, get up and take up your bed and walk. Again, I love the brevity of some of Jesus' statements that he just simply says, go, get up, go. And it says, at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now, there's a whole lot going on here that we need to unpack. Jesus, Jesus tells the guy, get up, walk. He doesn't say you're healed. He doesn't say you're better. He doesn't say, hey, t- test out your legs. He just says, get up and walk. And it says he was healed immediately and completely. This wasn't a, 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 a healing that took many years. It wasn't he could kind of walk or crawl and, and then he got better over time. No, it was instantaneous. It was supernatural. Jesus Christ had the authority to tell this man to do something and the man was able to do it. As soon as Jesus said, get up and walk, the man was empowered to do so. And he did. See, here's Jesus once again displaying his power, his authority that he had received from God the Father. It's interesting that he didn't help the guy get in the pool, right? He didn't, okay, I'll help you. Oh, it's, it's stirring. Let me get you into the pool. No, he just said, get up. Take up your pallet and walk. And, and here's the deal. The man was healed before the words were even completely out of the, word, the mouth of Jesus. This was the will of God performed by the Son of God in the power of God and with the full authority of God. Four decades of disease was cured instantaneously. And I don't think the disciples missed it. I don't think other people around the pool missed it. It doesn't say Jesus healed anybody else, but I guarantee they were clamoring. They wanted to get what this guy got. But that's not the point of the story. What's really going on here is something even more important than the man's healing. As great as that was, as as incredible as that was, and it's found in the very next verse, verse 9, it says, now that day was the Sabbath. Don't miss this. This is not a coincidence. This is not just an aside on John's part. He says, the day that this happened was the Sabbath. So the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. What do you think you're doing? See, this is is highly significant that Jesus chose to do this on the Sabbath, knowing that this was gonna happen. These men accost this guy who was lame, an invalid for 38 years who now can walk and they give him grief over the fact that he's carrying his pallet and therefore working on the Sabbath in violation of the law. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed on the Sabbath. You're breaking the law. See, we've seen over the last few weeks that John has established the fact that Jesus is a contrast between the temple and himself. He, he is the new temple. He's the new resource. He's the new place to go for forgiveness of sins and for cleansing and for righteousness. 
But we're also going to see here that the Sabbath is going to become another contrast that John uses, that Jesus is going to replace the Sabbath, the Sabbath day of rest. He's become the new source for the Sabbath. That, that it's not a day anymore, it's a person that you go to for rest. And, and so this, this contrast is, is being established. And you have to remember that these two things, the, the temple and the Sabbath were critical. They were core beliefs to the, to the Jews. And Jesus is changing things. Both of them were symbolic to the Jews. And here's what they represented. See, they, these, these religious leaders say, you can't do this. This is unlawful. You can't, you can't pick up your pallet and walk, even though you just got healed. And they most certainly didn't think Jesus had the right to heal, because to them, that's a work. And you see the disconnection between these men. They don't, here's a sign, and they even refuse the sign. And they're stuck on their law. They're stuck on their precepts. They're stuck on their way of seeing things and believing things. See, the temple was the dwelling place of God, and it was the place you went to when you had violated the law. It's where you got forgiveness for your sins. And yet Jesus is saying, I'm the new temple. This temple is going to get destroyed. But I'm the place now that you go to for forgiveness of sin, to have your sins atoned for. But also we have this picture of the Sabbath. The Sabbath for the Jews was a sign of the covenant between God and his people. It's, it's, he said, do this. This day, keep it as a sign of your commitment to me that I'm going to give you rest that I'm going to put you into that land of promise, that land of honey and, and flowing waters and abundance, and you're going to find rest there. Here's what it says in Exodus. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you, set you apart. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. See, these, these two things, the, the temple and the Sabbath, were so important to the Jews, and they, they tried to keep them religiously, and yet Jesus is saying, you're missing the point. You're missing me. As we'll see later, he'll refer to himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. And these men accost this guy, and they ask him, who did this? Who healed you? Who told you to get up and walk on the Sabbath and carry your, your pallet? And the man says, well, the guy who healed me, that's all he knows. That man who said to me, take up your bed and walk, he's the one who did it. And they said, well, who is he? Who is this man? that told you to take up your bed and walk. You can sense the tension going on as they accost him, as they want to know, who is this? And again, this is that question that gets asked all throughout this gospel. Who is this guy? And it's driven by contempt, not curiosity. They don't really care about Jesus. They're not even curious about how he pulled off what he did. All they want to know is, who is this guy that's broken our rules? Who is this guy that's violated the Sabbath? See, they, they're looking for a lawbreaker. They're not looking for a miracle worker. They're not, they're not even interested in signs. They're interested in their way of doing things. And Jesus has rocked their world. And it's going be, to begin an ongoing conflict that's going to heat up as we move through the rest of this gospel over the next weeks. Well, Jesus later on finds the men in the temple and he goes to him and he says, See, you're well, you've been healed. They've reconnected, and he says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. 
There's, there's a lot of time we could spend in this verse and there's a lot of debate over exactly what Jesus means here. But I think what Jesus is saying is not that his sickness was the, the result of sin. He's saying, you're well, you're physically well, but your real issue is you can't stop sinning. And he says, go and sin no more. Now, how, how much do you think that man was able to pull that off? Not at all. Because he was still an unbeliever. He was still stuck in his sins. He may be able to walk. He was no longer an invalid, but he still was living in darkness and helpless and hopeless to pull this off. And something worse was going to happen to him eventually. He would die and someday face the judgment of God. And yet Jesus says, you're now well. You don't have that problem anymore. You have a whole nother problem. And who's the solution to that problem? Himself. And all it says in verse 15 is the man went away and he told the religious leaders who it was that healed him. He goes and divulges who Jesus was. And then it says, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered them, my father's working until now and I am working. Why are they upset? They're, they're upset because he's broken the Sabbath. They're upset because of what he's done because he's doing things in a way that they don't like. He's not operating according to their ideas. And then he says, I'm doing the work of my father. And they understood exactly what he meant. They understood that he's talking about God because John goes on and says, verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but here's what they heard Jesus say. And this is what really got him into deep water with them. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's the problem. And that's gonna set up the rest of the chapter, the rest of the book. And we're not gonna dig into all of this, but just really quickly, I wanna give you an overview of what takes place in the rest of the verses of chapter five. All of these circles are references to the son and the father coming out of the lips of Jesus. And he's talking about his relationship with his Heavenly Father, God Almighty. And he repeats over and over again, the Son, the Father, the Son, the Father, the Son, the Father. And it irritates the religious leaders beyond belief. And he goes on and says, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. He goes on and says, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. I have authority from God the Father. Later, he says, truly, I truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. You think that was a miracle? You just wait. And those who hear will live. And then he goes on and says, for the Father has life in himself, and so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He has given him authority to execute judgment. He's establishing his authority and where that authority comes from, his relationship with God the Father. Once again, I can do nothing on my own. I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I don't seek my will. I seek the will of him who sent me. This is critical to the rest of the book because that phrase is gonna come up over and over again. The father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. See, he is the son of God who's been sent by God in order to do the will of God. He has full authority. He has full power. And once again, here in the blue, you see just all the references to him being sent by God. So as we, we wrap up chapter five and as we begin to think about what do we do with this information, here's what I want you to wrestle with. Jesus Christ is beginning to display his authority 
and to reveal that I'm doing everything that I do because of who I am, who I've been sent by, and what I've been sent to do. I have authority sent from God. So your first question I want you to really wrestle with is, why do you think Jesus placed so much emphasis on his having been sent by God? Why is that so important? And what does that have to do with his authority? Why couldn't he just do these things? Why did he have to be sent by God? Why do you have to have the authority of God? Secondly, concerning the two miracles John describes in this section, how did they display Jesus' authority and reveal that he had been sent by God? Go back and look at those two miracles he did. How do they display his authority? And finally, if the Sabbath was a sign of God's covenant relationship with Israel, what message was Jesus sending by purposely healing on that day? And it would not be the last time he healed on the Sabbath. What's he really saying? These are tough questions. They're deep questions, but we have to wrestle with them if we're going to understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Well, Father, I thank you for this this study. I thank you for this opportunity to unpack your word, the gospel of John for your men. And may, Father, you help us to see your son more clearly as having been sent by you so that we might be made right with you. We love you and we praise you and we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name, amen. You guys have a great week and I'll see you next week.